Well, good morning, Anthem Church. You guys can take out your Bibles, Acts 16, Acts 16. So glad you guys are here this morning. As Nathan said, my name is Stan, one of the pastors. And so just want to give a little bit of ministry update as you are uh, turning there. So just some sweet highlights. Honestly, get kind of in my own little bubble uh, when in church world. And by God's grace, bi-weekly, I get a Skype with some pastors or Zoom call with some pastors from uh, just around uh, the nation to just hear what God's doing in their churches. And they were reassuring me what's happening at Anthem is pretty special. And I was like, really? I didn't know. And so I was like, man, I should share that with our people. And so uh, it's pretty awesome. Guys, in the life of our church, about on a Sunday, there's 40 to 41 percent is college students uh, coming to Anthem. That means the other chunk of people, roughly 200 plus, are on the community side, which is awesome. Love our multi-generational church, but have been bummed for some of you college students that have been coming since the pandemic. You've never met some of our most beloved community people. Like you don't know the Hewlins or Tim and Annette or, or Mike and Linda Cox. You never had Linda hug you. You are missing out. And, and some of our young families that, that are not with us, given the pandemic, and some of you are smiling like Linda's hugged me. Yeah, you were here before the pandemic, but others, you wouldn't know that. And so uh, some of our young families, the, the Terrys, uh, I'm thinking of um, the Hatfields, uh, the Simmons family, there's, there's just a number. Miss Linda, she, she hasn't been able to be here because they're just more vulnerable population. And so, um, man, love what God is doing, but just recognizing that there's just some people that can't be in attendance given the, the COVID. Um, that being said, just our attendance, uh, talking to some of these pastors, fighting, they're fighting to get 40 to 50% of the people that they had pre-pandemic to just come and attend now. And this is where I was like, oh, <laughs> we're at 148%, so that's not normal, uh, is what you're telling me. And so, by God's grace, I've seen 120-plus more people coming since the pandemic. And it's not numbers, but the stories that have been happening. In the last four weeks, we've had a baptismal tank sitting up here. Seven different people get baptized. Some of you are like, I'm disappointed it's not there this morning, okay? It'll be back next week, okay? So, just, you know, but God's doing some awesome things in the lives of of, of people here at Anthem, uh, we've just heard stories. People, there's more than one way to be lost. And so people coming from religious kind of lost backgrounds and, and reckless lost and the testimonies that are being shared. And it's just really been special for us at Anthem and just rejoicing in what God has been doing, how he seeks and saves the lost. And we are going to see that in Acts 16 that to him be the glory for doing that, and to him be the glory for doing that in the life of our church. And so really excited to study this. But before we dive in, I do just want to praise God uh, for the ability to come together today to worship and to sit uh, in the teaching of God's word. And so if you would, let's just praise God uh, and be uh, thankful this morning, and then we'll, we'll dive in. But Lord, we do just praise you for the stories that are happening, the stories that are um, being worked out, and perhaps even the stories that you are continuing today as we study your word. God, would you please continue? And we do pray for those that are tuning in online, um, the more vulnerable crowd that can't be with us. Lord, we pray that they wouldn't feel alone, but they would know that there's a community that loves them and longs to be with them. And so God, we just lift them up uh, and ask that you would continue to protect them and keep them safe. We just pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So Acts 16 is where we're at, and we're going to see that this is uh, the missionary journey continues, the second missionary journey. Last week, there's a little bit of a sharp disagreement. Paul and Barnabas split. Paul takes Silas, and they sail off. And we're picking up the story in Acts 16 in, in Philippi. This is a, a city off the coast of the Aegean Sea. I actually was able to travel there in seminary. So here's a seminary photo of me and some guys. Look at that. I don't know what I'm doing in the front row. Just hanging out. Um, but we traveled to Greece. It was fun. The guy in the cool cap down front, that's Paul Semino. He was my roommate. Uh, we had a good time. His beard grows out orange, we learned uh, as time went on. But fun. We got to see all these places, walk in the footsteps where, where Paul had walked on his missionary journey. So here's some other pictures from, from Philippi. Just a sweet city. you got the mountains in the background. There's olive groves everywhere. And then this city sits off the Aegean Sea. Uh, Philip, uh, he would have drained some of the swamp, swamp lands to make it more inhabitable and uh, is really set up. Philip would have been the, the, the father of Alexander the Great. And so this would have been a retirement uh, city for a lot of Roman soldiers, people of nobility. It wasn't a huge city, but it was certainly a wealthy city. I think there's one more picture. Uh, this would have been... Oh, if you go back to the ruins one, that is the marketplace. These would have been all these shops where people would have been able to, to purchase goods uh, and just seeing some of these things. I mean, it's incredible. These ruins are still there, and you can still see, like, the shops kind of laid out how they would have been, uh, the, the big city street, like Main Street, walking through there. Uh, and then I think there's one more, and this is a, a shot of just outside of town, the little uh, river that kind of goes through there, and this would have been where Lydia and her prayer team were meeting, and this is where, likely, where she would have been baptized, uh, as we see in today's text. And so there's no known churches in Philippi at this time, no known believers in Philippi when Paul sits out on the, the missionary journey. And so when he rolls into town, he starts where any likely missionary would start, at a women's prayer meeting uh, is where he goes. And so at a women's prayer meeting, I don't know if they're doing Beth Moore or what they're studying, but they're getting together. And uh, Lydia is one of the individuals we see. This noble woman in Acts 16, she's religious, she's moral, she's a business owner, she's going to prayer meetings, but she does not have a relationship with Jesus. And we see that she's actually from this, this spot in Asia and she moved here to, to do business, seemingly, and she's selling these purple cloths to likely, again, retired military veterans. And, uh, and she's seeking the Lord, but still lost. And again, referenced it earlier, but it's possible to be religious and lost. Religious lost. The Pharisees demonstrated that. They were very religious, but still very lost. Moral individuals, but still no personal relationship with the Lord. I don't know about your story, but that certainly would best capture my story. For 15, 16 years, went to church religiously, did all the, the prayers. I could parrot them back just on the spot. Even now, it's like, where did that come from? Did the, the religious ed classes, but didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. I was as lost as last year's Easter egg, right? Like still... Religious, but, but lost. Uh, and, and I would just be curious, out of show of hands, how many of you would say you're kind of coming from that religious lost background? Can resonate. 
There's a few, some of you are like, okay. uh, yeah. yeah, some people coming from a religious loss background, or perhaps it's like, that's not my story, but you know people. You know people who have found a, a great way to not need Jesus is to, to try and just live a, a sin-free life. And so they've tried to work Jesus out of a job, and they're just moral people. Perhaps they would even profess and say that they are Christians, but they do not have a relationship with Jesus. And again, it's not that you're casting judgment. You're just understanding that they haven't professed Jesus, wouldn't want to be in their position on judgment day. Although moral, great, nice people don't have a relationship with the Lord. And so some of us are the former Lydia's or know some Lydia's, and God's going to meet her there. In verse 14, it says this of Acts 16. It says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And she's going to respond to the gospel. Repent, believe, get baptized in this little creek. Now, religious lost people make some of the best Baptists. And what I mean by that is Baptists are typically known for food and fellowship. Look at verse 15. After Lydia, she was baptized in her household as well. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Get what she's saying there. If you believe me to be a sincere Christian, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, then you must come to my house. If you don't come to my house, I guess you don't believe I'm a Christian. And so she just kind of guilts them into this and prevails upon them. It's like, okay, Lydia, like we'll come and eat some food. And so what I mean is religious lost people, once they have purpose, there's a joy. I, I was used to going to, through the routine and not having any understanding as to why. Now you give purpose and there's a relationship. It's like, man, now I'm actually excited to go to church, which is different because there was a time where I thought doing that routine, the more painful the routine, the more pleased I thought God was with me. No joke. I'm like, if the sermon is long and the, the worship is terrible, then God must be happier because I feel like I'm burning sin off or something. I feel like I'm doing penance. And, and, but nonetheless, like, once you get purpose, once you have this relationship, Man, God saves the religious lost, and she's excited, and she's inviting them in and continuing this growth, her and her household, sitting themselves under Paul's teaching. Now, in verse 16, this is where we're really going to focus for today as we dive into this story, is we're going to meet another girl, the polar opposite of Lydia. In fact, the only thing they pretty much have in common is their gender. They're both females, but they're very different. If Lydia is this prominent moral person, the person we're going to encounter is not. And so they're likely heading back to the place of prayer. Verse 16 says, As we were going to the place of prayer, where they would have probably met Lydia, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Now, time out there. This is a slave girl. We see that she's twice possessed. One, she's possessed by a demon. And two, she's possessed by owners. A group of people own her. And so she is possessed. And she is treated as property. But she's declaring what is true. And you're like, well, how is that possible? Because she's saying something true. James 2.19 says, you believe in one God, good. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. 
demons believe in God. Satan was with Jesus in the desert. And so there's a belief. They're just on the other team. They're, they believe in him. They're just in opposition to him. And so this demon is declaring what is true. But nonetheless, she is living a life of just oppression. And some of you have perhaps battled some demons, be it in the form of abusive individuals, those who claim that they love you, but yet treat you so poorly. Man, I've heard stories in the life of our church of that kind of oppression, people that have battled addiction, people that have um, battled depression, been plagued by mental illness or physical illness, that level of oppression. And perhaps, and I won't do the show of hands on this, but perhaps you resonate more with the slave girl than you would a Lydia. That that kind of describes your past of, of oppression. But God's got a plan for her. He brings light into dark places. And so here she is shouting in verse 17, hey, these men are the servants of the Most High God. Verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said, uh, said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, guys, I love scripture. I love how raw things get. Last week, we see two godly people having a sharp disagreement in parting ways. This week, we see the primary motivation is what? For casting out this demon. The primary motivation, he is greatly annoyed, okay? Greatly annoyed. He just can't take it. And the thing is like, wow, Paul really snapped. Yeah, he's got a little bit longer fuse than you or I probably do. Many days, she's following them around saying this. But after many days, I don't know how many, but after many, he's like, mm, we're done. <laughs> like, it just turns and they cast the demon out. It's just love the, the rawness of scripture. But God uses that annoyance to set this possessed girl free. And the demon who formerly was in control is cast out and no longer is she living enslaved by these owners or by this demon, perhaps becoming the, the, the second charter member of the first Christian church at Philippi, right? Her and Lydia. And the reason I'd have hope in that is Matthew 12 talks about Jesus said, man, when you cast a demon out, there's a void. And if that void is not filled with something, that demon's coming back with friends. I can't believe that, that Paul would have just left that void there. It would be helpful that this slave girl would have, responded to Jesus and started a relationship with him. Verse 19 starts with a but. You'd think this would be exciting, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments, that would be the garments off of Paul and Barnabas, and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now we see the early spin doctors, right? They, they take this, and what do they do? Remember, those making this accusation, they are slave owners, but yet they're going to spin this and say, actually, we're the victims. Those guys are the villains. 
And they do this by, the first thing they do, if you notice, is they apply a label to them. The first thing they say is, hey, these men are Jews. It's, it's true, but what's, what does that have to do with what's going on here? But when you're wanting to spin something, the first thing you do is you just put a label on somebody. Then you make a, a, an accusation, an unsubstantiated one. What is it that they say? They're disturbing our city. Really? They've been at a prayer meeting with Lydia, and now this possessed girl they've set free from a demon. How is that disturbing the city? But it's not relevant to their case because, again, if you're trying to spin something, give them a label, make an unsubstantiated claim, and just form a mob and just beat the snot out of somebody. And there's nothing new to that. That is still happening today. Make a claim, or sorry, apply a label, make a claim, form a mob. And Matt taught last week how this happens where we get triangled. And if you missed last week's sermon, I would just really invite you to go on our website, download the app, whatever, however you want to do that, to listen to that because it was so helpful. It's just still ruminating on that. But this idea of, of getting triangled, and again, it's in the sermon, but this idea that oftentimes in the story, there's people that feel like victims, and there, there's the villains, and these heroes are going to come save the day. And these, these slave owners are like, we're just the victim of these mean villain guys. And the mob's like, we'll be your heroes. We'll beat somebody. And so here they are claiming victim status. We've been wrong. Those are the villains. Proverbs 18, 17 says this. The one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. Old Baptist preacher here in town said it like this. There's two sides to every flapjack, no matter how thin it is. Meaning there's two sides to every story, no matter to how thin it is. But these guys just take the first one and they just run with it. And perhaps you've done that in your heart at times where you're just like, oh, I can't believe it. And you just hear the first thing and then all of a sudden you get the, the rest of the story. And you're like, oh, I just unnecessarily killed somebody in my heart, right? Never happened to you. Certainly it's happened to me. Uh, James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Anthem Church, what we see here, what I would beg of you is to not place labels on people. Do not place labels on people. What you've done is you've taken somebody that's created in the image of God who's this complex being with all these things and you've just put a label on them. This is who they are. Labels are super helpful for like products in a grocery store, for like organizing things. But when we simplify people and put a label and like, mm, this is what you are. You're a bully. You're a softie. You're emotional. When we do that, when we do that to our kids, oh, that's my such and such kid. That's my, and perhaps you've had labels put on you. It doesn't feel great, does it? It's not helpful because that's the first step. It's like, put a label. Oh, I guess this is the claim that kind of goes with that label. If we would withhold labels from people and we'd see people for who they really are, it would perhaps prevent us from making unsubstantiated claims and, and senselessly beating people down. And I wouldn't want that to be true of us. I wouldn't want that for your kids to live under those labels. I want, want that for you as an individual. Certainly don't want that for others, that we would just simplify them to a label. Uh, other than like 
you're a child of God created in his image, fully adopted sons and daughters who will one day be with him. Like if that label is the one you want to apply, sure. Okay. But, but aside from that, when we just simplify it, it's not helpful. It's helpful for, for our minds maybe, but not helpful to our relationships with people. And so the mob, they're not acting according to scripture. They run with the first narrative they hear and they take Paul and Silas, wrongly accuse them and just beat them, which it's crazy because they're Roman citizens. They were due a, a fair trial. This should have never happened. In fact, we're going to see that later on in the narrative. They're like, okay, go your way. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you just beat Roman citizens. There should have been a process here. But all that is out the window. They just hear something and just react. And I'd say we call this, the term that's floating around now, is cancel culture. Cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support or canceling public figures, companies, or individuals after they've said or done something considered to be uh, objectionable or offensive. It's cancel culture. You're hearing that term more and more now is just cancel. And, and this happens both ways where, again, we've avoided having relationships and we just cut them off and cancel them. And it happens when the public school teacher says, hey, I'm going to pray before a game or do something. We're like, oh, sorry, you're fired. Like there's just, sorry, zero strikes, you're out. And we just cancel them. Or it's like, oh, that kneeling athlete represents your company? I guess I have to burn everything with that logo on, canceled. It's like, that seems extreme, but, but, but we just cancel. Or it's happening in church world now where it's like, oh, I disagreed with something I heard. Can cancel my membership and go to a different church without having a discussion. And, and it's just happening more where our culture is put a term to it where they're just calling, yeah, it's kind of a cancel culture. And I don't know if, if part of the reason behind that is, is because a lot of our interactions now happen online or via text message. And so we're not as great about the relational side of things, but it's happening more and more and it's on both sides and there's a problem that comes with that because it starts to really make things more polarized and divided as a culture. Here's, here's why I think that would be a problem is, is because if the only people we associate with are people that think the same things and, and believe the same things, and the only way we say you can have relationship with us is if you agree with us on all these separate issues... You're not, that's not true unity. That's asking for conformity. And there ought to be a way to have unity even with people that you disagree with, theologically or about, you know. I would say, I would long for this church, for you as individuals, and you can think about this. Do you have someone that you know and love and have a deep relationship with, care, respect, who is going to vote different than you on the next election? Like, do you have people in your life that have different views? And, and we've gotten away from this. The, the, the university setting used to be a spot where people from different ideas, different cultures would come and intellectually discuss. And now it seems like it's proposed, like, the only, way to, only thing to believe is that there's just no, no one right way. And you got to walk in this way. <laughs> like, they've killed intellectual discussion. And in fact, if you, you try and have it or you take an, a view in opposition, you might even get expelled if you write your paper in that way. 
again, it's, it's just crazy that we've gotten away from this. But as a church, if we are concerned about having a witness, we ought to be able to separate somebody's ideas and beliefs from them as an individual. Because y'all know that you used to believe some stuff that was pretty not good, right? Or did you always just have it figured out? I know of things that I used to believe and just die on and argue. It's like, that guy was a moron, okay? But, but beliefs change. People can change in those positions. And so what happens is we kill our witness and we're like, well, sorry, you're canceled. You believe something different than I. Once you figure it out, then come talk to me. Then we can be friends again. And the whole point is being able to have unity without needing conformity. We, and, and I'm saying, praise God that, that we live in, in a free place where we can still vote how we want to vote, shop where we want to shop. Do not hear me say that we have to compromise any of that. No, that's, I love that. But I would want us to use our freedom to be able to, to, to win people to Jesus. And again, I'm not talking about pandering. I'm going to hold my convictions and believe them strongly. And you hold yours. That's great. But we ought to be able to do that and simultaneously love people and separate their convictions and their beliefs from them as an individual and see them as God sees them. And God seeks out lost people. And so, man, I would want that to be the thing here. And so, but we see that this is not a new thing where people just jump to things. The only time I think you can hold a deep conviction without really listening to the contrary position is if you're a Mizzou fan. Okay, this would be the one exception. I just want to put an asterisk next to this. Then you're, in, you're obligated to despise KU, okay? So I just want, don't want to go on without that. So, yes, if you are Mizzou Tiger, then we do not like Lawrence, Kansas. But aside from that, we should be pretty open where we can separate those differences. That was supposed to be a joke. Um, <laughs> so here we see them, though. They cancel, and they cancel in a hurry. Verse 23, they inflict many blows on them, threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, here's the thing. This is horrific. The, 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 the crowd sides with the slave owners, owners who insist that the girl remain possessed by a demon, and those that freed her from that should be beaten and imprisoned. And they throw them in, and they order the jailer to keep, him, keep them safely. Now, that's an odd choice of words, but it means secure. It's not like, oh, keep them safe. <laughs> it's like, keep them secure. Like, we, we're going to have a, a talk here. And so the jailer is our third character. If we've got Lydia, we've got the, the, the formerly demon-possessed slave girl, now the jailer. The jailer is kind of going to represent this hardened lost. Philippi, being the city that it was, was a retirement location for military, and almost always these positions of jailer are given to former military, guys that would have been on the front lines, and it would have been kind of a, a prestigious opportunity for them to continue to exude a level of authority and dominion and to give them a sense of kind of purpose as they come home from the front lines. And so likely this jailer has seen some stuff when he was out. And you do not get to become a world superpower by being nice and giving everybody like puppies and kittens, right? You do it by conquering land and conquering people. And he was a part of that. And so here he is and perhaps seen some things. And the reason I think he might have a little like PTSD sort of stuff is, is just what he does here. 
He's asked to, to keep them secure, make sure they don't get away. He takes that and puts them in the inner prison and fastens their feet in stocks, meaning the inner prison, think of more cave-like uh, uh, jail prison area where this probably would have been like the lowest, most end point of a cave kind of prison. And in that would have been the spot where all the runoff of like human feces would have likely ended up in this inner dingy cell. And somebody's like, ooh, that doesn't sound good. Yeah, he puts them in there. And it's not enough to just put them behind bars. He puts their feet in stocks. Likely they're laying down like clamped in, laying with their backs that had been exposed by rods, laying in human feces. Some of you in the medical community is like, that doesn't sound like that'd be good for infections. No, it'd be terrible. It's, it seems like a little bit harsh. And perhaps it's because the jailer was a little bit hardened. Having seen some things, he didn't just run with the rougher crowd. He was the rough crowd. And perhaps you can relate, having done a few tours or done a little time in prison, Maybe you've lived a rough past or had a rough upbringing that, that calloused you, that causes you to be a little bit guarded, to always kind of be alert. Some people in this, because of the dysfunction in your home, you've been providing for yourself and making a way ever since you were young. And you know what that's like. The world's a tough place, so you got tougher. And perhaps you don't, because of that, because of bad authority in your life, maybe because kind of that callousness, you don't trust authority unless it's your own. Again, I'm not going to do a show of hands, but, but I would venture to guess there's some hard and lost people that come from that background. It's a tough crowd and tough crowd to reach, but certainly not impossible for God. And we're going to see in verse 25 that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is about midnight. After a long day, it starts likely in the morning with them casting out this demon, and immediately they are mobbed and flogged. I don't know when they would have had time to just grab a meal. So they're hungry, tired, and it's midnight. This is a long day, and this is Paul and Silas. Again, their backs beaten, laying down likely in this feces, and it says they are praying and singing hymns. Now, if they're praying alone, if it's like they're praying, you might deduct a level of despair, and they're crying out, God, would you help us? God, would you rescue us? But the fact that it says they're, they're doing the kind of prayers that accompany singing, and they're singing hymns to God. They say, What? Which is no wonder the prisoners are up and like, man, what did these guys get thrown in here for? Because they're watching this take place and they're taking note. And the fact that they were singing these hymns to God was suggest that their joy was not tied to their conditions, but it was tied to Jesus. Not in circumstances, but rather in person of Jesus. And so God doesn't change. And so he's no less worthy of praise whether it be sunshine, rain, or human feces. He's unchanging, and so he's worthy of praise at all times. And so they're unsure, sure, of what the future holds, but they know who holds it. And so they're worshiping, singing these hymns, because their hope is in Jesus alone. And so here's the thing, though. 
in those moments, you might have to tell your soul what to believe at times. And as Matt was pointing out, that's not manipulating yourself. It's just motivating yourself to what is most true. And you get this from the psalmist. The psalmist over and over in the Psalms is like, tell you what, soul, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> this is what we're going to believe. Psalm 43.5, he, he says this, why are you cast down, O my soul? I think we have this slide. Do we have the slide up here? Uh, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, my God. He's saying, soul, we're going to hope in God. Elsewhere, Psalm 103, he's like, we're going to remember all of his benefits. In Psalm 35, 9, we're going to rejoice, soul. That's what I'm going to say it again. We're going to rejoice. Soul, we're going to boast in the Lord. Psalm 34, 2, this is what we're going to do. We're going to praise God from whom all blessings flow. And they are singing these hymns. You might have to sing yourself into proper perspective. And that's not manipulating your soul. It's just reminding your soul of what is most true. And there might be a time, Anthem, where you've got to sing yourself into proper perspective. And I recognize that in this crowd, there are people that are going through hard things. In fact, just this week, as I was meeting with some individuals, there's two separate times where I just moved to tears hearing about the trials that, that are within our church, hearing from individuals, and it just hurts. And I just wanted to fix it, and I can't. It's just taking it to the Lord in prayer and just the helplessness that's there. And I, I don't want to make light of their position. They do not know how this is going to turn out. There's no promise that, that anything's going to happen other than they will be killed by this mob. But again, their joy was not dependent on their circumstances. It was in the Lord. And so these, these Paul and Silas, yeah, they're feeling a level of helplessness physically, emotionally. I can't imagine having just seen this perhaps slave girl come to know Jesus and then the fear in her eyes that I imagine were there is the guys that helped you come to know him were led off and beaten and the inability that they have to be able to comfort her. But sometimes you sing yourself into perspective. Find a song to sing. For me, Psalm 118.24, start in the morning. Usually I'd come out and my kids, they'd be like dreary-eyed on the couch. I don't know. They, they, they go to bed at 7, so they're usually up pretty early. One of the things we do, though, is I walk out and I say, this is the day. And they say, this is the day that the Lord has made. And then Nessa just takes off on her own song. But for the most part, the other three, we say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Before anything comes, let us recognize that this is the day that God has made. So whatever comes, it's because God's sovereignty. He's made it, and so we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Do you have a song that you can access Scripture that you can saturate your soul with, that you can speak truth back to. I love this, that there are some artists within our church that are getting together this week to just write, collaborate, to write worship songs for us as a church that, Lord willing, we can sing together. It's important to declare those truths. Paul and Silas are declaring those. Their joy can't be robbed. And the fellow prisoners are taking note of this. In verse 16, it says this, though. And suddenly... There was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He was going to kill himself because losing prisoners was punishable by death. So he pulls his sword out, a sword that he made a living by. He's lived his life by the sword. And now likely he's propping it up, putting it on his vitals, and is about to fall into it. All hope is lost for him. But in verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, this hardened individual. He brings them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if your family believes, they too. He repents and believes. This idea that found people are going to help find people. The jailer did them harm, but they are going to do him good. And again, that's not because they have this great willpower and they're like, oh, you wronged me, but I'm... No, they recognize, even when I did God wrong, he did right by me by sending Jesus. And so that's how I'm found And so if God's forgiven me and he's saved my life, I'm going to save, literally, save the jailer's life and we're going to see God save his soul too. See, found people find people. And he repents, believes. Then I read the NSB, the the, the language I think get a little more accurate where it says he and his whole household believes. And God saves the lost. And can you imagine sitting at the church of Philippi on Sunday where Lydia, this prestigious leading woman, is perhaps sharing a hymnal with a former demon-possessed slave girl. Perhaps the jailer is up there, kind of fumbling, trying to lead him through a devotional, reminding everybody about the hope that they have in the Lord. And then Paul would write a letter, which we as a church are looking to study at the beginning of the new year in January. We're going to go through the letter to the Philippians. And Paul would tell them this right out the gates in the letter, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God has started something in you. He started something in you as individuals in the church of Philippi, and he's going to see it through. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. God is is working something out. And I would just want to say in the life of Anthem, bringing it full circle, God is doing something within our church, within the lives of individuals, within families. Again, I think some of you are just so moved to get to see a sister getting to see her brother give his life to Jesus Christ in that powerful testimony and baptism a few weeks ago. God is doing something in the religious lost, the reckless lost. God is doing something in the life of our church and just want to rejoice in trusting that he who started the work is going to see it through. And it is to our joy to be a part of it. You get the opportunity to participate as one who has been found. You get to help find people and bring them in. The hope that we have ought to be evident. He'd say that later on in Philippians 2. And again, we're going to study it extensively in January. But he'd say this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have found your hope in Jesus, and he said, then it ought to be evident. 
that you wouldn't be motivated by selfish ambition or your own kind of vain conceit, but you would be motivated and consider others as more worthy than yourself, that you would have the attitude of Jesus Christ. You would tell the Philippian church, Jesus who humbled himself and became obedient to death, he would tell that to this church that if your hope is in Jesus, we ought to make that hope known to others as Paul and And again, it's just the byproduct. I don't think that they were just like, oh, the jailers are, uh, like the, the prisoners are watching. We, we, we should sing some hymns or something. It was just out of the overflow. It was a natural byproduct that was going to happen. So I don't think the, the lead goal is to go out and just share. It's just a byproduct of having been redeemed. You can't help but not share. And so I want us to just be grounded in the hope. And so as we celebrate communion today, would we just be able to remember that Jesus Christ took the punishment that we deserve? His body was broken. His blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. And perhaps you can even remember to how it is that God found you in your lostness. I don't know if it was at church camp or was recent, what it was, but would we just remember the, the work that God has done, that he has promised to the Philippian church, he's going to see through. And so as you take communion today, this is for those that your hope is in Jesus, that you would remember his body was broken, his blood shed, so that we could be forgiven. He resurrected and he's coming back again to redeem his bride. And so as you take communion, would you reflect on that? And then we're going to respond with a couple songs. And one of these is written... Uh, it's a hymn that was written like 150 some odd years ago. Nick, you got to help me with her name. What was her name? Uh, Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby. Uh, as we take communion and we remember what God has done for us, I don't want our faith walk to just be something that's completely individualistic. Because God so loved the world. Certainly that means you as an individual, but God's love for the world. And so as we sing, the second song is this hymn. Would you just remember the saints, the men and women that have gone before, that for some 150 years have sung this same song, declaring these same truths about who God is? And so I'm just going to pray as we prepare to take communion. And then when you're ready, I invite you to stand and worship, proclaiming what is true. And if your soul's not there, would you allow it to catch up with the truths of these songs? And so let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that our hope is not in circumstances. For if it were, for some of us would have no reason to hope today. But our hope is in you, Jesus. And so we just pray for those that are hurting, that are in those spots, God, that you would graciously go before them. Think of those that are struggling with infertility, those that are struggling with oppressive individuals in their lives. God, would you have mercy and help them truly keep their hopes centered in you? And so, God, we do pray that our hope would be centered in you and you alone. And so we remember this morning as we take communion what you've done in our lives and what you've done in the lives of countless of others. And so to you be the glory. It's in that we reflect and remember as we take communion and worship you this morning.